You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today I'm excited to introduce you to Ava Glass. Ava is a former civil servant and journalist who once worked closely with spies. She lives in the same town in the south of England as Christopher Steele, but that, of course, is a coincidence. She joins me today to talk about her career and her latest novel, Alias Emma. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Ava. Oh, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to have you here. And I'm going to ask you the same question I ask everybody as we kick off, which is, Ava, tell me, where does your story as an author begin? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's funny because I never really wanted to do anything but write. But then I didn't think of myself as writing books. So I became a journalist and I was a reporter for years. And then I've said more than once that I don't think I had a career path, you know, with a series of defined stops along the way. It was more like a a careening train running out of control. I just sort of took the path that opened to me. And so I was a journalist for a while and then I wasn't a journalist anymore. And I became an editor for a while and then I wasn't an editor anymore. And then in the midst of that, I got offered a job to work for the government as a communications expert, whatever that is. And I needed a job. So I took the job. And that brought me close to a lot of really interesting people doing interesting work, basically, <laughs> that had nothing to do with me whatsoever. And I was there for a few years, long enough to sort of soak that up. And then obviously, I wrote a book. Like at that point, I felt like, well, what am I going to do now? The careening train has taken me to fiction. So that's how I became an author. It was a careening train, basically. A careening train. I love it. I love it. A <laughs> runaway train. Where did you, uh, where did you grow up? I grew up all over the place. My parents moved a lot. So I lived in the U.S. I was born in the U.S. actually. And I lived there until I was in my 20s. And then I moved to England. So I grew up in Texas a bit and in Montana a bit and in Louisiana a bit. So around. <laughs> All around. Well, what what uh, were your parents doing that caused you to travel so much or move around so much? I think it was just what they liked to do more than anything they had to do. So my dad just liked being on the move. So we were. <laughs> All right. Very cool. What what was it about writing that that really captured you? Because it sounds like it's something you always wanted to do. Were you an avid reader growing up? What was uh, what's the backstory there? Yeah, I think I come from that subgroup of authors who were quite introverted children who lived a very active life of imagination. We're a large subgroup. And that world of fiction 
became so much more interesting to me than my own life and so much more important than my own life. And I always had this ability from the time I was about eight to completely lose myself in a book. So completely that my parents couldn't, you know, couldn't get my attention and they would take books away from me to try to get me to focus on more immediate or what they saw as more important things like real life. And that carried on until I was at university, at college, I could still completely lose myself in a Stephen King novel until the point where I would, I would forget to study, I would forget to do things. And that, I think, I never, like, that doesn't lead immediately to being a writer. It leads to an active imagination. But the writer thing was mostly because I didn't have any other talents. There was literally nothing else I can do. I have no skills whatsoever, except telling stories. You mentioned Stephen King. What, uh, what are some of your favorite Stephen King books? Uh, do you know, recently I was on a drive across England. I had, and, and let me tell you, that doesn't take very long. It's not a big country, but all the same. I was going up and then back down again. So I was in the car for a while and traffic is terrible. And I was listening to Salem's Lot again for the first time in about maybe 15 years. Wow. I was listening to the audio, the audio book and I have read that story more than once. And I know everything that happens to it. I have seen every TV series made of it. And yet every time it gives me goosebumps, every time when he gets to the page where the vampires appear, it freaks me out. It is still scary. It is still masterful. So I would say Salem Slot still, still right up there at the top of my list. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's so great. I love, um, I love The Stand. That's my go-to King novel. Yeah. I, I go to that one. I also loved um, 1122-63. Yes. No, about, that one was just... That one. Yeah. Very imaginative. I, and I enjoyed it because it wasn't as typical, you know, you know, I mean, certainly one person dies <laughs> because it's John F. Kennedy, <laughs> well, but, but, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, it's kind of, a, kind of a different, it was a change of pace from what I knew Stephen King for. So I always liked that. Always liked that. Well, when did you first start writing though? I mean, it's, I know your, your first novel is, is just coming out. But when did you when did you take an interest in actually writing stories? Were you did you grow up writing some some stories or? No, I never had that kind of approach. I was a reader, not a writer. Yeah. Um, for most of my life until I became a journalist, and I saw journalism as this approachable nonfiction feels somehow more rational a career path because it's real things and you're not making things up, which seems so dodgy. Basically, as a way to try and make a living. It, when you're writing about something that really happened, that feels realistic and practical. And I, I found I could do that. I was quite good at that. That came naturally. And that was a relief because that was my only plan. And, but in terms of writing fiction, I think the first time I tried it, it was probably about 15 years ago. And I sat down to write a book inspired by my background working as a journalist. And what I ended up writing was a nonfiction book about my background as a journalist. And it was quite awful. And I threw it away. And I thought, okay, I'm not really good at making things up. Whenever I try to make things up, I end up writing reality. And so I tried again, not for quite a while, um, quite a few years after that. And when I tried again, I tried writing about something that had nothing whatsoever to do with me. So writing about a British person who didn't grow up in America, who didn't have my background, who'd never worked as a reporter. And that went a little better. And then eventually I started writing about spies and they're close enough to my experience in that I've met a few, but far enough in that I'm not one and I've never been one that I could make things up, which became quite, quite an entertaining thing to do. Yeah. I mean, just listening to you tell this story. Yeah. I think a lot of what a lot of people don't know is that someone's first book 
is not, it's typically never their first book, right? So it's their first published book, but, you know, oftentimes, you know, people have, have tried, you know, one, two, three, four, five times before something sees the light of day or, or the author feels like, Hey, this is good enough, good enough to publish. That sounds like that was your story as well. But what I'm really curious about as we start talking about Alias Emma is, and before we talk about the book, what was the job where you came into contact with spies? Was this the mysterious communications job in the government or? Okay. Yes. So it was just an absolute fluke as I think the best things in life are. So I'd worked for a while as an editor at a publishing house in London. And then that job sort of ended because the publishing house kind of ran out of money as things go. <laughs> and I wasn't sure what... <laughs> oh, yes. When you work in, in writing anything, in any art, it happens far more often <laughs> But it's the way most of my jobs have gone. And then they ran out of money and I had to get another job. It's my story of my life. And so I was trying to decide what to do next. And at that moment, just purely by coincidence, an old friend got in touch who was working for the government. She'd taken a job while we hadn't spoken in the last year, working for the Home Office, which is the British department that oversees security and counterterrorism. And she was setting up a website and doing comms for them, digital communications. And she was looking for somebody to come work on counterterrorism. And she thought of me because I had been a police reporter for a while and she knew I wasn't easily scared. And she said, it's our scariest subject. Do you want to come do this? And I was like, how much does it pay? And she told me, and I said, yes, I do want to come do that. I have a rent to pay. And so I took it thinking it would be, and she thought it would be a few months and it became four and a half years. And it meant what I did was I tried to get um, intelligence officers, so people who work in intelligence, to communicate directly to the public, to talk to them about these really critical issues of terrorism and security. And they refused. <laughs> and that kind of went on <laughs> for several years because it was it's, it's a very tricky area. It was mostly negotiation and kind of trying to get them to trust me. And what it meant was that I kind of got to like them and I got to know them just a little. But I also was aware that everything they told me was probably a lie. <laughs> Interesting. What would surprise us most about real world spies? Because I think we all have these, you know, these views of James Bond or these views of, you know, other, you know, spies that we see in pop culture and literature. What do you think would surprise us most about real world spies? I think the thing that would surprise people most is how ordinary they are. They are, if they look like, if someone walks into a room looking like James Bond, everybody's head's going to turn and you're going to look at them, which is literally the last thing a spy ones. They want to walk into a room and be accepted as whatever their cover story is. And for that, they need to look just like you and me. And they do. They do. You would never, ever. I honestly worked there for nearly five years and I didn't know half the time if the person I was talking to was or was not a spy, because it's not like they'll tell you I'm a spy. Hi, I'm a spy. That's not That's a thing right. they say. That's right. <laughs> they say, huh. <laughs> hi, I work in security. I'm from department X and I'm here to chat with you about this is all they say. And it could be anybody. They could be an administrator, a pencil pusher, an actual spy. And only a few revealed to me that they really were. And they never even then said it. It was just through things that they let me know, yeah. which then made it clear that they were. Right. And that was always, always thrilling. I will right. say it never stopped being thrilling. I imagine. But I imagine there's not a lot of guys or women on like match.com or Tinder dates who say, Hey, what do you do for a living? Well, you know, I don't, I don't share this with everybody, 
but you know, I go to Russia every other month and, uh, you know, do whatever yeah. it is I do. Over one of the, I can tell you, one of the spies told me that his wife, who he'd been married to for 15 years, didn't know he was a spy. So nobody knew. But yeah. you knew and he didn't know. And she didn't I know. Knew. You knew and she didn't know. I knew, but I didn't know his real name. So mm-hmm. it's not like I could ever, like, you know, everything is false. Everything has a layer of, of falseness to it that everything is hidden. Everything is deception. Right. So whatever I knew couldn't hurt him because I didn't know the rest. So, right. yeah. Very cool. Very cool. I mean, there is, there is some kind of like a romantic nature to this, right? Cause it's exciting and it's, you know, different, but I'm sure it's, it's a lot more ordinary than, um, you know, than we're led to believe perhaps. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> well, why don't we talk about your book? So what can you share with us about alias Emma? Well, alias Emma is about a female spy who's, she's quite young. This is her first major assignment. She's in her sort of late twenties. She's a former soldier. She is a incredibly capable and well-trained person, but she's never had an undercover assignment entirely on her own. And her assignment is to, to find the son of two former Russian spies who have defected to the UK years before. He's an adult. He's a, he's a doctor. A Russian assassination squad has targeted his parents who've been taken into custody, but he has refused to go into protective custody to keep them safe. He's declined to go. And if he doesn't go into custody, if he's not protected, he'll be killed that night. She knows that much. But he, so he doesn't want to be rescued. She has to rescue him. And the complicating factor is that in the middle of this, the CCTV cameras that completely cover the streets of London have been hacked by the Russians and they're being looked for on them. So that means there's almost no way to move without being seen. Yeah. So she has to find a way to get him to safety without being captured, without being spotted and without being killed, basically. Wow. Wow. Well, I, I, I can't ask you what happens next because that would ruin it for everybody. However... How did this story come to you? I mean, was is there any element of this that was ra- uh, sort of rooted in it's something that actually happened? Or is this purely from your vivid imagination? I would say it's mostly vivid imagination, but it was sort of inspired by an incident that happened in England in 2018, when two, an ex-Russian spy named Sergei Skripal was attacked with a nerve agent, which was left on his doorknob at his house where he was, it was a safe house where he'd been living. Now this was only about 25 miles from where I live in the South of England, which is in the most benign, leafy, suburban, you know, gentle rural town. The idea that a nerve agent could be used in a town like that is insane. The idea that that is the kind of place where defecting Russian spies are hidden is also wild. And the idea that any of this could happen, just it was just the most extraordinary attack in the middle of Middle England that then sort of stayed with me. So I started thinking about all these ex-spies living in the UK, because there are rather a lot of them, and who cooperate with the British security agencies and keeping them safe and their families and what it's like for their kids who grew up here and consider themselves British, but who are always caught up in this in this life of their parents and always will be at risk from it because it seems as if Putin never forgives or forgets. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So neat. Well, I have to ask, we can't really get too, too, too much more into the book. What did you learn about yourself during the writing process and the publishing process for, you know, your, your first kind of published piece of, of fiction? No, oh, that's a good question. 
I mean, I mostly wrote it during sort of the first years of the pandemic when the world had gone very quiet and I suddenly had time. And I suppose I learned that I know more about spies than I thought. I'm not, I could never do that. I think one thing when I was working with spies was constantly wondering if I could ever do what they do. And I decided I'm far too honest. I find it almost impossible to lie. And so I was writing somebody who has to lie fluidly and constantly. And that was a marvelous sort of trip of the imagination for me because I would find it impossible. And I loved writing somebody who could do it easily because I knew so many of the people I'd met and worked with had lied to me all the time. And I think they really liked me. It's just natural. They, they couldn't possibly tell me the truth. So that, that was really interesting. I learned about my own honesty and that I could never possibly do what they do. Very cool. Very cool. Anything surprise you about sort of the, the business side of, of writing, the writing fiction? It is a very strange business. Surprising about it. Well, my experience was a little probably unusual in that when we first went out with the book, my agent and I, I suppose in terms of writing it, no surprises. I'd written three or four books before then and thrown them away. So the act of writing was quite comfortable to me. But in terms of how publishing works, when my agent first went out with the book, we didn't hear from any publishing houses right away. Who we heard from immediately were producers. I started getting contacts from producers personally, and my agent started getting them almost immediately. And when, you know, it was just this very odd thing, and that seemed to propel publishing. So the producers came first, and then almost immediately after them, as soon as word got out that producers were interested, publishing houses came around. And it was, so that is, that is, unusual. I didn't expect that. I thought it would be publishers first. And then if I was really lucky, producers. But I think these days with TV being so big and so much interest in properties, it might be turning the other way around. So that was yeah. quite unusual. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Because you know, I've heard, you know, from other people say, hey, you know, produce there's some interested, you know, some interest from Hollywood, but they want to see how well the book does first. It's, it's yeah. almost like they're yeah. you know, their kind of focus group, if you will, of you know how popular something might be. However, just hearing the the pitch, you know, you've got a very strong female lead. You've got which is you know which is on trend, and it's an exciting story. I mean, it's a really exciting story. You could actually you could almost see it just from your pitch. You could almost see it adapted to the screen. So, which I think is uh, which is cool. And I always say books are better than the films or the the TV series. However, with something like this, it just sounds like a natural natural fit. Well, fingers crossed from your lips to God's ears. I'd love for that to happen. <laughs> well, he, I don't think he listens to me that much, so I, <laughs> I'll, but I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Well, I always like to ask uh, people some questions to get to know them a little bit. And I do that through pop culture mostly. So I'm curious, when you were growing up, Ava, what were some of your favorite TV shows as a kid? Okay, let's see. So I loved Moonlighting. What else did I love as a kid? I loved... When I was really little, I loved WKRP in Cincinnati. That was um, a great show. And we just lost uh, <laughs> Howard Hessman recently, right? Yes. Dr. Johnny Fever. Yes. Oh, that was a great show. <laughs> that was, that it was, was great, a great, great cast. You could watch it. I could watch it with my parents. And I was really little. And we would all find it hilarious. And there's there's not so much today, I think, that, that fits that category that everybody can enjoy just the same. But it was brilliant when I was really little. And um, what else did I love? Oh, you know, what did I love? Such an interesting question on television because we watch so much. I suppose I was a, a dynasty person. 
as well when I was you really, when I was you like really a young like those, teen. Those nighttime dramas, huh? Dynasty. And, <laughs> yes. Yeah, moonlighting is an interesting. You know, when, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was, I was going to say, say when I was when I was particularly little, I always told my my husband about this that I daytime television was all shows from the fifties and sixties. And so we watched, I mean, I loved, I dream of genie. I had no idea it wasn't current. And I loved my favorite Martian and things that you can't really see anymore. And I'd love to show them to him because he's never seen them, but it was all 19, these old reruns during the day after school, they were perfect for children. And I do when I'm like home and I'm not doing anything, sometimes I find them on YouTube just so I can see if it was actually <laughs> happened. Some of those shows, because they just live in the back of my little kid mind, I think. Yeah. You know, I asked you were going to say something. I was going to say, you know, I asked this question of, of everybody. Moonlight, this is the first time Moonlighting has come up. And it was a fantastic show. I mean, Bruce Willis, Sybil Shepard, and the guy, what was his name? Uh, Curtis Armstrong. Yes, well remembered. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, there's a reason why I go to pop culture is because I know way too much <laughs> of it. But that was a great show. That show had like depth to it. It, was, it had like heart depth and, and comedy. It was, uh, it was a very good show. Yeah. I think underrated under, and underrepresented on Uncorking a Story. Yeah, good. Well, I'm glad I could bring it to the people. <laughs> <laughs> Just as I do with TV shows, what about musical artists? Who did you listen to? Who was in your, if you had a Sony Walkman back in the day, who would mm. you have? Who were you listening to in that thing? Okay, I was a big REM fan. So I listened to REM from the very beginning. So I was a proper indie girl, I'm afraid. So it was all REM and The Cure and The Smiths and the Bengals. So name your late eighties, mid eighties <laughs> band. And I can, um, that was me in, in school. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah. I was with, I was with REM up until monster came out and I just didn't love that album so much. There's some same, good songs on it, but same. man, the but, IRS years, it was the IRS years for me when they were with IRS, they were the best. Yeah. Yeah. I love, love the radio free Europe and some of those, uh, earlier, yeah, life search pageant or some of the earlier stuff, but the later stuff not not as good. But I still I would still love to see if they came around live, I'd go see them. That's put that. Yeah, me too. All right, how about this? I, I do believe we all have uh, an inner child inside of us. I think that inner child helps fuel our creativity. How do you feed your inner child, if at all? That's an interesting question. I suppose I still my inner child just likes to read. My child, when I was a child, that was my only hobby. So I still read everything. I still read voraciously. I suppose also do the kids like, it's one of those things I was actually talking to somebody about it today, about we're sitting in front of a fan and I was saying when we were little, you know, did you ever like sing into the fan and talk into the fan to get that vibrating voice back? And he was like, yes, why don't we do that anymore? And I said, I don't know, because that was so entertaining when I was about seven. (laughs) So maybe I need to talk into a fan more, I suppose. Writing in itself, so making things up for a living is the ultimate indulgence of your inner child. I make up people, I make up stories, I tell stories to myself constantly. And I feel like in every book I'm I'm going to be telling stories to people. So that that is that is the ultimate gift I could give my inner kid. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know, I looked at like I have three kids, we have triplets, they're 20 years old now. But I remember like when they were really young, you know, they were so creative, like, you know, they would draw, they would sing, they would put on little shows for us. If we ever had company over, like they'd, they'd put on a play that they'd write, you know, we'd make movies. And then something happens where that just stops. And it's just so 
you know, it's so sad when when all that stuff stops because people get self-conscious and all of a sudden they, they start worrying about what other people think about them. But yeah, this notion of being able to do some world creation, you know, through writing. And I guess the greatest thing about writing is you don't have to share it with anybody if you don't want to, but you could still feed that inner child by doing it. So yeah, that's a great answer. Yes. I like that answer. Moving on to the blank sheet of paper. How do you feel when you're staring at a blank sheet of paper? You got to write something or maybe it's computer screen. I don't know. What does the, the blank page do for you? I do think there's no more terrifying words on the planet than chapter one. I think it's an, it's an awful thing to see on a page. It's horrible. And so the thing I tend to do is just write as fast as I possibly can so that the page is filled. And if it's awful and the words are terrible, it doesn't matter because I can go back anytime. I know no chapter gets more rewritten in any book than chapter one. You'll go back to it over and over and over again. And so you don't have to worry if it's awful. It doesn't matter. Just keep going because you're going to come back to that 50 times. Those words you write, they're not going to last. They're not even going to last probably the end of the day, certainly not till the end of the week. And that's what I tell myself because chapter two is so much more pleasant and I feel so much more confident about it. So get through chapter one so that you can get to chapter two and then you're off. You're just off to the races. Yeah, it's almost like just start writing because if you're going to have to change everything anyway, at the end of the matter. day, it really doesn't matter, right? If you, if you, yes. if you, and it takes the pressure off. It takes yes, the pressure exactly. off. And lastly, if you could get into a, uh, a time machine and go meet your younger self at some point in time, what words of advice would you give you know, the younger Ava Glass? What would you tell her? What would you whisper into her ear? I would say, don't worry. All your dreams are going to come true. And that was it. That's all I would say. Because I don't even know what my dreams were then, but I feel like having writing a book, being married to the man I love, living the life I want, that all my dreams really did come true. I can't think of anything else I might've wanted when I was seven that I don't have now. So yeah, I would tell her that. And then maybe that would make the next 15 quite difficult years a little better. <laughs> it never ceases to amaze me when people just say, hey, you know, to their younger self, don't worry or just relax. Don't stress out so much because they realize, and I think we kind of all have the benefit of hindsight, but that things are going to be okay and, and stop stressing out so much about, I mean, I was so stressed out about silly things in high school and college. I would have had a lot more fun if I just let myself relax a little bit more, but you know, and I guess even at 47, almost 48, I still worry about things that I, I know are going to be okay. But but now I'm making this about yes. me and this should really be about you. Um, <laughs> no, I think that's universal. That is the thing is you're, you're speaking my own words to me. This is I still worry too much. I still, you know, focus on the things that are the least sometimes important. And so that is that's good advice. Just tell yourself what you would tell yourself when you were seven, which is it really will be okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's see here, Ava. If people who are listening to this want to get in touch with you, do you have a website or social media that you want to share that with everybody? I sh sure do. I am avaglass.co.uk and I am on Twitter as at avaglassbooks. And I have the same handle, if you will, for Instagram, which is at avaglassbooks. Just Google, Google avaglassbooks. And you'll find me everywhere. And I'd love to hear from you. There you go. And I'll put all of that in the show notes so people don't feel like you have to write it down. You can just go to the show notes, tap on it, and you can get in touch with Ava. Well, this has been a very fun conversation. Uh, all the best with alias Emma. I'm excited to uh, dig into it. And uh, yeah, all the best. Thanks for stopping by and corking a story. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute joy. 
Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.